when I was younger in the faith, uh, I used to want to discern the will of God. Not that I don't want to discern the will of God now. It's just that when I was younger in the faith, I, I wanted to read the mind of God. Anyone ever feel that way? You just, what does God want from me? What, what does he want me to do? I've got this choice or that choice. Which one does he want me to choose? What path does he want me to go down? If only God would tell me his thoughts. And so what I would do is I would look for signs. Little things, big things, just, oh, this, this happened or this came up across my path, so maybe I'll go this direction. Terrible strategy. If you are a sign seeker, it's a terrible strategy. God does not reveal himself in signs. He reveals himself in one place only, and that is in the Word of God. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you, you have or you still are trying to read the mind of God. Who should I marry? What job should I have? Where should I live? Big, big decisions or maybe smaller decisions. What church should I go to? What ministry should I participate in? Or maybe trivial decisions like what should I eat? What should I wear? Uh, maybe some of you are caught trying to read God's mind and even those little things, those trivial matters that don't really matter at all. Who here wants to know the will of God for their life? We all do, right? But what do we mean by this? What, what do we mean when we say that we want to know the will of God for our lives? Do we need to be able to read the mind of God for every detail, large and small and trivial, in our lives in order to know the will of God for our lives? In today's two-verse text, two text, we will discover everything we need to know in order to be able to know the will of God for our lives. So if that's a topic that interests you, sit forward, open your ears, and be ready to learn how to discern the will of God. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. This is the word of God. Romans 12, verses one to two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? The Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we take a look at these verses, your Word, I pray that you would help me. Fill me with your Spirit. Speak through me. And show us how to discern the will of God. We want to know your will that we might do it. I pray that if there's anyone here who is sign-seeking, that you would show them this morning that you do not give us signs. You give us your word. And you have called us to renew our minds that we would be able to discern and know and do your will. Oh God, please help me as I preach and help us as we receive the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're back. We're back in the book of Romans. It's exciting. We're on the last leg of the journey. Uh, I mean, there's, there's several stages, right, in the book of Romans. You, you might be able to identify three major sections, chapters 1 through 8, which is the doctrines of, of salvation, chapters 9 through 11, the doctrines of election, and then chapters 12 through 16, which we're just starting today, and these are the doctrines of Christian living. And they're, they're all related together, and that's what we're hoping to show you this morning. The two verses that, that are our text for this morning are a hinge point in the book. Uh, they, it's, it's on these two verses, if you really want to understand the book of Romans, that the whole book swings. So you have your first two major sections, 1 to 8 and 9 to 11. Those are your, your doctrines, of, or your, your doctrine, 
basically, your orthodoxy, the things that we ought to believe. And then in chapters 12 through 16, those are the things that you ought to do, orthopraxy, your behavior. So orthodoxy, the things that you should believe, chapters 1 to 11. Orthopraxy, the things that you ought to do, chapters 12 through 27. But putting these two major sections together, you have verses 1 and 2. And they belong equally to chapters 1 to 11 and chapters 12 through 16. They are a hinge point. They look backward and forward. So the doctrines of Romans 1 to 11 provide the rationale for our Christian living in chapters 12 through 16. And I'm going to say this probably several times over the course of this morning and over the course of the next many months. If you preach, if you read, if you implement chapters 12 through 16 without at least a momentary relapse into chapters 1 to 11, you will fall into legalism and moralism. These chapters, chapters 12 through 16, can only be rightly understood by Christians as a response to the salvation of God which has been shared with us in chapters 1 to 11. We only do these things because we have been saved. We only do these things as an act of worship, which is what our verses this morning said. This is your spiritual worship if you do these things. Worship is, by definition, a response. God makes creatures. Creatures respond to their very existence by worshiping. That's the way it was supposed to be before the fall. After the fall, as creatures, not only do we worship God because he made us, but we, saved humanity, worship God because he saved us. So our worship, if you want to understand worship in simple terms, we respond to the fact that God made us and God saved us. That's worship. Responding to those two truths are the essence of worship. And so Paul says here in these hinge verses, in light of chapters 1 through 11, worship God. How are we supposed to worship God? Chapters 12 through 16. So that alone will help you to understand the book of Romans. But do not try to do chapters 12 through 16 just because the Bible tells you to. This is one of the problems of preaching a book like Romans. It's so long that can you even remember that when we were going through wrath and propitiation? Do you, do you, what do you remember about justification? What do you remember about sanctification? What do you remember about glorification and election? Because it, it's those doctrinal truths that are to inspire, motivate, and mobilize us to respond by worshiping God, chapters 12 through 16. One of the big struggles then of preaching a book like Romans is it takes a year if you're going really fast. And so we have to continually remind ourselves. And I would encourage you to periodically, at least once a month, maybe more, um, reread the whole book of Romans. Because I can't re-preach 1 to 11 every week before we get to the next part of chapters 12 through 16. Uh, but for today's sake i will review it fairly quickly uh, and this should be for those of you who've been with us this might you might need to be refreshed on this because it's been a month or two but this really should be a part of your bones by now in romans 1 through 3 we learn that god is revealing his wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness that is Human beings have sinned against a righteous, perfect creator. And we've worshipped the things that God has made rather than worshipping God himself. Therefore, God, because he's a God of justice, must justly punish us. The way he does that is to reveal his wrath. God's wrath in this age and at the final judgment is a simple concept. The withdrawal of God's presence. Wrath is not God inflicting us. It's God removing himself from us. 
So you see it in North America right now. You see the wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in North America and other places too, but in North America because you see that we are becoming less and less inclined to worship God and to live for God. God is removing his common grace. He's removing his saving grace so that there are fewer of us who are being saved by the gospel numerically And those who are not being saved, they are not being preserved by God's common grace as much as they were decades past. That's the wrath of God. The more we worship God's creation, the more he will remove himself from us. The ultimate removal of God from humankind occurs at the final judgment. That's where the wrath of God is total. And that's when he casts the unbelievers into the lake of fire, which is the final hell. What is hell? What makes it so terrible? I don't know much about hell except this. There is no common grace or saving grace in hell. All of God's goodness is removed and we are left to ourselves. Is there more that makes it bad than that? Maybe, but there's, what's worse than that? That's wrath. By the end of chapter three, we learn about propitiation, that God has found a way found a way to save us. And that comes as very good news. This is Paul's beginning to unpack the the doctrines of salvation for us. And he says that what happened was God became a man. He sent forth his son. God, God became a man. Jesus is God. And as a human being, one of us, he's he's like us in every way, and he's additionally fully God. He lived a perfect life and he received the wrath of God that the human race deserves. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the fullness of the wrath of God. God has removed himself from Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. Now that's a mystery. How does God remove himself from God? I don't don't know, but that's what God did for us. And in exchange, by receiving the wrath that we deserve, he was able to receive the justice, the condemnation that we deserve, and extend to us justification and sanctification and glorification, salvation, basically. It's the great trade. Jesus is punished. Jesus dies. The punishment and the death that we deserve, and we get the righteousness and life that he deserved. That's where Paul goes next. In chapters 4 and 5, we learn about justification. What is justification? Justification is a legal term. it's, It's a status. It's a position before God. So when Jesus died on the cross, he took the status or the position of sinner. He was made to be sin, even though he was without sin. He became a curse for us. So he took on the status of sinful humanity. The way the theologians talk about this is our sinfulness was imputed to him. That is, if you could bundle our sin up somehow and give it to him and he takes ownership of it, that's the imputation of sin. He takes our sin. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. It's the great trade. God who is just will not punish our sin twice. So if your sin is punished in Jesus on the cross, you're free. There's no more justice to fall against you and your sin. Your sin will be punished. It's either going to be punished in Jesus on the cross or in your own self at the great white throne of judgment at the end of the age. You get to choose by God's grace. So, we choose, but no one will choose grace, ironically. No one will take this free gift unless God helps us, enables us, elects us. Well, that's 9 to 11 to choose. But that's, that's justification. Now, at the end of justification, though, uh, nothing has changed in our natures. We are still sinners by nature, even though we are saints by position. So justification changes your legal standing, your your status before the throne of God in heaven. 
And, and so, at the end of chapter uh, five, Paul is leaning toward the question, and he asks this at the beginning of chapter six, um, the more we sin, the more grace God gets to pour out on our lives, and the more grace God pours out, the greater glory he receives. That's why he gave us the law. Because uh, if, if all kinds of sin and wickedness could take place because of the breaking of one law in the garden, it, when God gave 613 laws through Moses, now our sin has become just multiplied, which requires a greater gift of grace for justification. And so Paul's saying, but don't worry about that. God gave the law so that he could showcase just how deep and wide his grace is. Now, that creates a theological problem, and this is what he picks up in chapter 6. He says, well, if that's true, if God wanted to multiply our, our sin by giving us the law so that we would break more laws and be, have a greater guilt before the throne of heaven, then why not just sin more, that we give God more opportunity to justify because the more grace is required for our justification, the greater the glory to God. And Paul says that's not a good way of thinking. In the beginning of chapter 6, he introduces sanctification. And he says, well, before we get into sanctification, let me just add this. If the gospel was only justification, I do not believe that the, God, the, the doctrine of justification is sufficient to answer why we should not just sin more that God's grace may abound. Logically, and this is why Paul brings it up, that makes sense. If the gospel is merely a transference of status that we impute our sin to Jesus and Jesus imputes his righteousness to us and we are declared to be righteous there is nothing in that doctrine that would prevent us from sinning more because by sinning more we do give God an opportunity to showcase the depth of his grace more all glory be to God that's not the end of the gospel and that's where Paul goes in sanctification chapters 6 and 7 in chapter 6 and 7, Paul starts and says, Therefore, should we sin more, that grace will abound more? He says, By no means. And then he goes on and says, Do you not know that when you put your faith in Christ, not only were you justified, but you died with Christ? And if you died with him, then you've also been raised to a newness of life in him. What's Paul talking about? Well, somehow, which is beyond my comprehension, beyond my ability to explain to you, but in actual fact, the moment that we are called from darkness to light, from death to life, from faithlessness to faithfulness, we are joined to Christ on the cross, and when he dies, we die with him, and we are buried with him. We are united to Christ, and his death becomes our death and we actually die with him and in our nature we we die and then in that same moment for us experientially for us our death and our resurrection happen spiritual resurrection happen instantaneously whereas jesus was in the grave for three days or raised on the third day we die and are born again you know that language we are raised to newness of life we become new creatures in christ instantaneously and we are regenerated and we are given a new heart our nature has changed now so not only do we have a righteous legal standing in heaven but our hearts have been made holy in their very nature and we are united to christ in his death and in his resurrection and we have been made like christ in our very nature in our hearts. Now, for a, a whole chapter and a half, Paul stresses that point. You're new. You're holy. Not just in status, but in nature. You don't desire to sin anymore. You actually do not sin anymore. A whole chapter and a half. And I, we went through this then, and we'll go through it again, and we say, well, hold on a minute. I do desire sin, and I do sin. 
And that's where you get to the second half of chapter 7, and Paul finally lands it for us. He says, well, hold on a minute. There is now, you are a complex creature now. At the center of who you are, uh, there's different biblical words for it, your heart, your mind, your inner man. These are all in chapter 7. You're holy there. You always agree with the law of God there. You, you are totally righteous in your nature there. You never desire sin from your heart, ever, if you've been saved. But, this is the second half of chapter 7, you're still wrapped in flesh. There's a lingering reality of your sin nature, not at the core of who you are, in the more surface levels, in your flesh. And we talked about, I don't really know what flesh is, and I kind of go back and forth. Is it a part of your, your immaterial self, your soul, or is it merely your body? I, d I don't know. But we do know this. In chapter 7, Paul sets up a, a contrast between your heart, which is the true you, which is a new nature, a new creature, and your flesh, which is not the true you anymore. And there's a battle now, not in your heart, but between your heart and your flesh. The battle is not in your heart. The battle is between your heart, which is holy and righteous, and your flesh, which still desires to sin. And so Paul says, so live from the heart, from, from the inner man. Take control of the members of your body. Do not give your flesh an opportunity to sin. Be your true self. That's the exhortation there. So going back to the original question, should we sin more that grace may abound more? By no means, not because of justification, but because of sanctification. If you've been saved, you've been made new, and you don't want to sin anymore, even though your flesh still creates sinful desires. So if you're desiring sin from the core of who you are, then you're not saved. And we went through that for weeks. That's sanctification. Then glorification. Glorification is on the same continuum of sanctification. So whereas we've been raised with Christ in our hearts, our inner man, our, our souls, I would say a spiritual resurrection, uh, we're not yet fully glorious because we're trapped in bodies that are still getting old, they're still breaking down, they're still desiring to sin. So glorification is the end of this, where uh, if I die, you put my body in the ground. Glorification is this promise that Jesus will raise my physical body that was buried in the ground, whatever remains are there, back to glorious, superphysical life. And he will recreate this universe so that he himself can manifest the fullness of his glory within creation. That's glory. And we will live with God in a new heavens and a new earth, which is qualitatively new, but quantitatively the same. That is, it's the same universe made qualitatively superior. That's the glory that is promised to us. So when, when the sons of God, that's male and female, when, when we are raised back to life in physical glory, then the, the curse that God put on the creation will be lifted and he will glorify the universe and dwell with us. That's chapter 8. Chapters 9 through 11 then are the doctrines of election. Really simply, which is not simple, because we are totally depraved, we will never choose the gifts of God's salvation unless He causes us to. We, he elects us, He chooses us, He gives us the faith we need to be justified, sanctified, and glorified. Moreover, He has elected the nation of Israel to bring about this salvation for the world, and He will not reject Israel. He will save Israel at the end, so Israel will be one of many nations in the new heavens and the new earth. I could say more, but we're out of time for that. So God elects us. No one chooses God unless and until God has chosen us. When did God choose us? In eternity past. But he calls us from death to life in space and time. So that Paul will say, if God has foreknown you, then he has called you, and if he's called you, he's justified you, and if he's justified you, he will glorify you. Notice he skipped over sanctification because glorification is the end of sanctification. 
And it's this golden chain of God, God doing it. God from eternity past securing your eternal future. All glory be to God. That's election. Okay. We can't do that every week, but I think that's an important part now. That's the foundation. That's the bedrock of chapters 12 through 16. Because in chapters 12 through 16, we say, in light of this, this is how you ought to live. This is the practice. This is right living. Now to our hinge. All of that for this. For our hinge, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. In, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 12, you get the exhortation. This is the command. This is what Paul is commanding us to do. This is the command that he will then tease out for chapters 12 through 16. So chapters 12 through 16 are illustrations of verse 1. What do you mean in verse 1 of chapter 12, Paul? Well, I'm going to give you chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 to help you to understand this one command. These are all illustrations of this one verse. And then verse 2 is the instruction, how are we going to fulfill this command? So let's take a look at these two verses for the remainder of our time. Verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you could reduce all of the commands that we're going to look at over the next number of weeks and months, that's the one command. If you want to say it this way, is there law in the gospel? Is there law in the new covenant? Yes. Well, what is that law? It's verse 1 of chapter 12. This is the whole law for the Christian. So let's take a look at it. I appeal to you, therefore, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? Was what I just spent all that time to do. So, in fact, I have been exegeting this verse for you already because the therefore requires us to revisit chapters 1 through 11. I am appealing to you. I'm about to write you some things in light of chapters 1 to 11. Therefore, you have to always keep the doctrines of salvation and election at the forefront of your mind when you're thinking about the new covenant law. Because the new covenant law, which is to respond in worship to what God has done, is exactly that. It's based on God's initiative. It's based upon God's grace. By the mercies of God, I am appealing to you, therefore, in light of chapters 1 to 11, brothers, by the mercies of God. He didn't need to write that. The mercies of God are evident in chapters 1 to 11. But Paul is so concerned of legalism and moralism that he adds this redundancy to chapters 1 to 11. You are doing these things in and by and because of the mercy of God. What does that mean, the mercies of God? This one command, which is going to be teased out through chapters 12 through 16, can only be fulfilled by God's mercy. And I mean, that could be a whole sermon right there. But in short, what it means is, apart from God's mercy, you're not justified. Apart from God's mercy, you're not sanctified. Apart from God's mercy, you will not be glorified. And unless you've been justified, made right with God, unless you've been sanctified, been made a new creature in Christ, you are incapable of keeping these commands. That's what the whole Old Testament is about. God gave them 613 laws and they were by their very nature incapable of keeping the law. And so we do this entirely by the mercy of God lest anyone think they earn any righteousness or if they can please God by the things that they do. All that we do is by the mercies of God and because of the mercies of God, it's fueled entirely by God's mercy. It, you do not have a circumcised heart. You do not have a new heart. 
you have not been made obedient from the heart apart from the mercy of God. You do not desire to do the right thing apart from the mercy of God. But because of the mercy of God, you have been made new. You do desire right and good and truth. And therefore, by the very same mercy that has saved you, by that mercy, live for God. If we do not recognize this fact, then everything preached from now to the end of Romans 16 will undo all the work we did over this past year in chapters 1 to 11. Let us not become legalistic or moralistic because we've now come to chapters 12 through 16 and it gets practical. Christian works, Christian obedience are always in response to what God has done. Living for God is the result of salvation, not the means of salvation. We do these things because we have been saved, not in order to be saved. We do these things because we have been made right with God, not in order to maintain a right status with God or to earn a right status with God. All of our behavior flows out of what is true of us in Christ. We're going to have to remind ourselves of this. Legalism is seductive and subtle. Paul goes on, he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there is a hyper-grace movement among some so-called Christians. And I call them so-called Christians because I don't know if people who subscribe to hyper-grace are actually saved. They've bought into a false gospel that says what we do doesn't matter, which is nowhere true in the Bible. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now this is an exhortation. Our hearts are already holy and acceptable to God. Our inner man, our inner person is already holy and righteous and acceptable to God. Now therefore, live from the inside out to present your bodies. That's where the war is. That's where the battle is. That's where we struggle, isn't it? It's to actually do the things that God wants us to do. And what we do in our bodies matters to God. Should we sin more that grace may abound? By no means. Do you not know that you have died with Christ, and if you have died with Christ, then you've been raised with Christ unto newness of life. Your hearts have been circumcised. You've been made obedient from the heart. You will not desire sin if you've been sanctified. Therefore, struggle against the flesh to present your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Now, the the language that Paul uses is really interesting. We no longer worship God by sacrificing animals. In the Old Testament, yeah, there's an aspect to worship which was right living, but because they could not, they, were, they did not have the capacity that we have in the New Covenant. They had animal sacrifices which were foreshadows of Christ's sacrifice. Now, we live on the other side of Christ's sacrifice, so we don't bring uh, lambs or goats or rams or bulls to church. We don't bring animals up here, tie them up and slaughter them and then burn their bodies. Instead, we come and we unite ourselves in, in prayer, in, in singing, in preaching, in thought to the sacrifice of Christ, which is the fulfillment of every animal sacrifice. And then we offer our lives as living sacrifices that are united with the one true sacrifice that has saved us. There's continuity here. We don't, we don't offer ourselves as a sacrifice apart from Christ. That would not suffice. 
But as a continuation of Christ's sacrifice, we respond to what he has done, not by offering animals anymore, but by offering our very lives, our very bodies, to honor, to respond to what Jesus has done for us. And how do we do this? We do what is holy and acceptable to God. It is not legalistic to encourage one another not to sin. It is not legalistic to require that of ourselves, but allow, to allow for grace when we fall, for sure. But to be striving toward a holy life that is acceptable to God is a good and Christian thing to do. It's not legalism unless it is detached from the sacrifice of Christ and the doctrines of salvation and election. Well, what is holy and acceptable to God? Well, Paul's going to tell us, not all of it, but that's what chapters 12 through 16 are. Chapters 12 through 16 is he's going to give us illustrations. This is not exhaustive. In, in chapters 12 through 16, we're not going to get the full and final answer to what is holy and acceptable to God, but he's going to give us enough that we'll be able to say, well, if we start there, if we, if we could master in our, presenting our bodies in f- the fulfillment of chapters 12 through 16, then we're going to find the rest a whole lot easier to discern. Because we'll say, well, this doesn't coincide very well with Romans 13 or Romans 14 or Romans 15 or any part therein. So what is holy and acceptable to God? That's what the rest of the book of Romans is going to tell us. Therefore, what this verse is doing, what this one command is doing, this summation of the law in the new covenant, if I could call it that, is Paul is setting up the theological context in which we are to receive the coming exhortations. This is the safeguard against legalism and moralism. As I said, we do not do these things to become right with God. We do these things because we are right with God. And Paul says this is our spiritual worship. If you do a word study on the, on the word spiritual, another, another English word for that word is rational. This is your rational worship. Rational and spiritual go together. It's, a, it's immaterial. We're not, we're not offering an animal. We're, we're doing what makes sense immaterially, spiritually or rationally. This just makes good spiritual sense. It makes good rational sense to present our bodies as living sacrifices to, to the God who saved us. In other words... If Romans 1 to 11 is true of us, it will be rational to worship God by living this way. It won't be a struggle. It may be a struggle to execute, but it won't be a struggle to embrace. If you're truly in Christ, when you read Romans 12 through 16, you say yes and amen. I'm not there yet, but I, I, by God's grace and by his mercy, I'm making progress to look more like Romans 12 through 16. And, and if, if you buck against, if you are repulsed by Romans 12 through 16, you're not saved. If Romans 12 through 16 becomes cold moralism and legalism to you, that this is what you do because God wants you to do it, but you don't want to do it, then you're just not saved. It's your, it's your rational, natural, or supernatural, spiritual worship to do these things if Romans 1 to 11 is true. So there it is. That's, what's, what's the law to the Christian? That's it. Present your bodies as living sacrifices to God by God's mercy. You're not going to do it perfectly. And when you fail, there's mercy. But endeavor to, to live in your body. Your brain is a part of your body, so that includes your thoughts. Your tongue is a part of your body, so that includes your words. Your hands and your legs are part of your body, so it includes what you do with your members. Your mouth is a part of your body, so it includes what you put into it. Your reproductive organs are part of your body, so it matters what you do sexually. Present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God, and you will fulfill all the law. 
instruction. How are we going to fulfill this? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we going to do this? Other than just figuring out what all the micro commands are, right? We have the one command, which is verse one. Uh, We could just try and get a list of micro commands gather all the commands of the New Testament, put them together and say, let's just do those things. I think that misses the mark, though. That's not, that's not the governance of the new Christian or the new covenant Christian. Paul, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, wants us to be governed by a renewed mind so that to act in accordance with our heart, to act in accordance with God's desire for us becomes the most natural thing in the world. So we're not rule-keeping. We're living out who we truly are in Christ. Subtle, but important distinction. So he starts with, how are we going to fulfill this? Well, do not be conformed to this world. Conformity to the world makes it impossible to fulfill the great command, which is to present our bodies as living sacrifices. The world does not present their bodies as living sacrifices to the God who made and saved them. So we must not be conformed to this world. Now here's the problem with this. We will not coast toward a manifest holiness. Now we're already naturally holy on the inside. Our inner man's. But, but we will not coast toward a living from the inside out toward a manifest holiness if we just go on autopilot, and you will know this to be true of yourself, I believe. Check yourself. It's true of me. If, when I am coasting, when there's no effort, then I coast toward worldly, worldliness. I become more like the world when I'm coasting. I desire the things of the world. I sound like the world. I act like the world. Is that not true of us? When you are not trying, when you're not putting an effort into your relationship with Christ, you will coast away from Him. You won't coast toward Him. So do not be conformed to this world. Conformity to this world is easy. It's the easiest thing in the world. You will always revert back to that rut that is native to your flesh. Resisting conformity to the world is hard work. That's the hard work of the Christian. To activate your faith, to live from your heart and not from your flesh. That is a struggle. That is a battle to the point where Paul will say, I want to do what is good, but I cannot do it or I do not do it. I do the very thing that I hate. He's coasting toward worldliness. So it takes work. I heard this quote 10 years ago, and I love it. Linda Linder, who went to Paul, uh, sorry, John Piper's church, uh, was teaching a course on biblical womanhood, and she was instructing women. And she said, if we do not think biblically, she's talking about biblical womanhood, we will think culturally. That's true of biblical womanhood, but it's, it's true of everything. If we're not thinking biblically, we're going to think culturally. So, so women, just to tie the quote into into Linda Linder's original context. If, if you're not figuring out what it means to be a woman by going to the scriptures, you will be a woman according to the standards of the world. And the teachings of the church and the Bible will be offensive. But that's not just true of women and womanhood. It's true of biblical men and manhood as well. But it's true of everything. If we're not thinking biblically about any given topic, it's not very long before we're thinking culturally and we're not that far apart. We come to church and and someone gets up and opens the Bible and says something and we're offended. Because we're we're being conformed to this world. And Paul says we're not going to be able to offer our lives as living sacrifices if we're conformed to the world. So do not be conformed to the world. Put another way, If we're going to do this, if we're going to live for Christ, if we're going to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God, we must be transformed by the renewal of our mind. 
It's exactly where Paul goes next. By the renewal of your mind. What does it mean to have our minds renewed? I think in the context here, he's not talking about our hearts, our inner man. Sometimes the word mind can, can refer to the center of your being. He's talking about our brains here. We have to renew our brains, our thinking. Why? Because if not, we'll think culturally. Well, what do we need to do if we're going to fulfill the command? We need to think biblically. So how do you renew your mind so that you will think biblically? This is not a, this is not a trick question. Saturate yourself in the Bible. It's the only way. And let me tell you, listening to me talk about it for an hour a week will not saturate you in the Bible. It just won't. And I'm not talking about saturate yourself in Paul's epistles. I'm saying saturate yourself in the Bible. There's a reason we have 66 books. It is not a waste of time to learn all 66 books. And here's the other thing. You don't have to apply every verse to your life in order to saturate yourself with the Bible. The, the amazing miracles, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is you just enjoy the Bible as a good epic story and your mind will be, by God's mercy, in the process of renewal. The more we read the Bible, the more we will think biblically. You don't have to work at thinking biblically. You just have to read the Bible, and it will naturally happen. The more we think about the Bible, the more we will think biblically. The more we talk about the Bible, the more we will think biblically. The more we preach the Bible and sit under the preaching of the Bible, the more we will think biblically. A renewed mind is a biblical mind. So what's so important about a biblical mind? Well, going on in the verse, it's only a biblical mind that is able to discern the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And that's where we started, isn't it? Who wants to know the will of God? I think everyone puts their hand up at that. Well, the only way to do it is not to look for signs. It's not to to do some kind of magic where you think you can read the mind of God, God will not tell you what he's thinking outside of what he's revealed to you in the Bible. There's no verse in there that, that will tell me whether or not I should be a pastor or not. But the more I'm thinking biblically, the more competent I will be at making good, acceptable, Bible-informed decisions that accord with the will of God. So we don't try to read God's mind. We try to think the way God thinks. And when we have the mind of Christ, which is a gift given according to Paul in, in the letter to the Corinthians, through a Bible-saturated mind and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will make biblically informed decisions that are acceptable and pleasing to God, and that's the will of God for you. So you he's not going to tell you what to do with your life on, on the, the big decisions of life, but he will tell you how to think and how to live. And so long as you're doing that, you will make decisions that are in accordance with the will of God. Because when we're able to discern the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God, then we'll be able to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Put another way, a renewed biblical mind knows the Word of God, approves the Word of God, meaning is not offended by the Word of God. The world is offended by, uh, by the Word of God. The, the world hates our Bible. The world hates our Gospel because they do not have a biblical mind. And if we agree with the world against the Bible, then we have been conformed to the world. But a renewed biblical mind knows the Word of God, approves the Word of God, loves the Word of God, and then does the Word of God. We cannot start with doing the Word of God. That's legalism. You have to start with knowing, approving, and loving the Word of God. And if you have those three down, you will find that you are doing the Word of God. But an unrenewed and unbiblical mind does not know the Word of God. 
And if this mind does not know the Word of God, the, this mind does not approve the Word of God. It sounds foreign and, and false and offensive. And if this mind does not approve of the Word of God, then this mind will not love the Word of God. And if this mind does not love the Word of God, this mind will not do the Word of God. It's not rocket science, but it all comes down to the first step is knowing what this book says. And that takes work. We will not be able to offer our lives as living sacrifices unto God unless we know the Word of God. That's why we're a teaching church. Now, it is a great tragedy that many, many Christians and so-called Christians, I'm including both, true saved people and just churchgoers who aren't saved, many Christians and many, many so-called Christians are so unfamiliar with their Bibles that they do not know, approve, love, or do the Word of God. Thank God for His mercy. There are some Christians who live just like the world that by God's mercy will find themselves raised from the dead invited into the new heavens and the new earth. But they will have missed an opportunity to present their bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. And there is a judgment of works. Our placement in the kingdom is contingent upon the lives we live. Not entrance, but placement. How well do you know the Bible? Not parts of the Bible, but the Bible. Are you thinking biblically? Fathers, are you helping your families to think biblically? Mothers, are you training your children to think biblically? Families, are you working together to think biblically? Renew your mind so that you can fulfill the law. As we move forward into Romans 12 to 16, we will learn the good and acceptable and perfect will of God for our lives. Now, Romans 12 through 16 will not tell you which job to take, which person to marry, how many kids to have, what church to go to, where to serve in ministry. But if we can learn the, the will and the word of God, or learn the word of God, which will show us the will of God, then we will make decisions that are in accordance with the will of God. And the Spirit will help us. We then, over the next season of the life of this church, are going to give ourselves to doing these things for this is our rational, spiritual worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this. Uh, we thank you that this is all done by your mercy. Um, there's nothing that we can do to earn your favor, to increase your favor, to make you love us any more or any less. Uh, we are entirely secure in Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. We've been united to him in death. We've been raised unto new life. You will raise us from the dead if we keep our faith in Christ. But God, help us to worship. Help us to worship you by responding to the the twin facts that you have made us and you have saved us. Oh God, please protect us from legalism on the one hand and please protect us from worldliness on the other. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.